Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 945 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Well, good morning. How are y'all doing today? Good. So we're going to be jumping around a lot, but our main passage is going to be in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. So a little about myself. My name is Chris Corbley, for those of you who don't know me. I graduated from OU back in 2020, and I'm currently attending Dallas Theological Seminary, where I'm pursuing, pursuing a master in theology. So I've been serving in college life the past couple years, and Kevin is out of town, so he asked me to speak this morning. And as Izzy and Sabrina were talking about, we're currently in a series within the Gospel of John entitled, I Am. And the goal of this series is to understand that God is knowable and that Jesus is God. Last week, Kevin wonderfully exposited the first of seven I Am statements in John's Gospel, I Am the Bread of Life. He helped us to understand that as the Bread of Life, Jesus ultimately and completely satisfies. And we should therefore look to him to find satisfaction in our life. So like I said, this Sunday, we're going over the second I am statement, I am the light of the world. Our main passage, John 8, 12 through 20, is going to be right in the middle of the gospel. Um, so in this passage, in the related text, we're going to see that Jesus is the light of the world. And believers are now his light in the world until he returns. Our call to action by the end of our time together will reckon that because Jesus is the light of the world, and has made us his light in the world, we are to be a light in the dark world around us, as our master before us, until his return. So we're gonna see this through three main points. The light of the world is Jesus, the light's followers have the light of the world, and the light of the world will return to judge the world. So before we dive into our main passage, I think some context will help us to better understand why Jesus said, I am the light of the world, when he said it, as well as where he said it. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has already performed many miracles, taught truth to thousands of people, and has certainly become the center of focus in the public eye. Chapter 8 picks up during the Feast of Booths, also known in some translations as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a festival of the Israelites, established all the way back during the time of Moses. The Feast of Booths was a week-long ceremony designed to remember the wilderness journey of the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan. They would make booths, which are temporary shelters, and live in them for the whole week. The purpose of this was to have a physical reminder of their dependence on the Lord, Yahweh. These booths were meant to be temporary because the wilderness was not the land God had promised them. They were to look forward to the promised land that the Lord would deliver them to. Now associated with the feast as well was the expectation of the promised Messiah, not just a promised land. Not only did they look to the Lord to deliver them to the land that was promised, they they turned an expectant gaze to the Savior who would deliver them from their sin. So during the Feast of Booths, there would be ceremonies depicting God's provision. In the previous chapter, chapter 7, the water drying rite is described, where priests would take water from the pool of Siloam and carry it back to the temple, pouring it on the altar as a sacrifice to God. After this, the lighting ceremony would begin, where four large lamps around the courtyard would be lit and set ablaze so that the whole courtyard would be illuminated with its light. In the courtyard, there would be joyous singing and dancing, praises being brought to the Lord. It is in this context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So let's read this passage together now. John 8, verses 12 through 20. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness about myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it is written that the witness of two men is true. I am he who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he was teaching in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So like all of Jesus' I am statements, Jesus' claim is in the singular definitive. This means he is the light of the world, not a light. He is not many, one of many ways to see and understand the world. He is the way to see, to understand the world. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? What is so significant about light? Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, light is mentioned over 200 times. That should tell us that there is some significance to this term. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is mentioned as the light over 20 times. So it's certainly a title that Jesus is known by and is repeated throughout Scripture. Let's briefly go over some of the characteristics of light so that we may be able to comprehend why Jesus is the light. So the first one is sight. Light is what, is, is what makes us able to see everything in this room, like me, you, the tables, chairs, decorations. If there were no light, we would not be able to see. And then it also, truth and knowledge. So truth is something that is associated with light. For example, are there any experts in Swiss law concerning the possession of domestic rodents? Anyone? No? All right, well, here's a neat little fact for you. Did you know that in Switzerland, it is illegal to own just one guinea pig? It is considered animal abuse because guinea pigs are social creatures and they get lonely if they're by themselves. So, 30 seconds ago, you, were, you would be considered in the dark on this fact, but one would now say that you've been enlightened. So, moving on, we've got morality and holiness. All throughout scripture, the morality and holiness of individuals is associated with having light within them. Light is also necessary for life. Plants survive based on photosynthesis, where they take energy from the light and transform it into chemical energy. And this is used by the plant to fuel its activities. And then finally, light is required for design. Art, architecture, and craftsmanship all require light in order to create things that are beautiful and awe-inspiring. Now the opposite of light would be anyone. Dark? Darkness? Yeah. The opposite of light is darkness. And so with light and all these different qualities, the opposite is true for the darkness as well. The opposite of sight is blindness. The opposite of truth and knowledge, error and falsehood. Morality and holiness, immorality and sin. The opposite of life is death. The opposite of design is disorder. So how could anything exist without light? What would the world, the universe, look like without light? Instead of going to some abstract philosophical proposition, let's just turn in our Bibles instead to the beginning, to Genesis 1. And we'll see here what it was like before there was light. So Genesis chapter 1, and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
Now let's pause there for a moment. We see here what the world was like before there was light. It was formless and void. There was no sight, there was no life, and there was no design. But let's keep reading. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So the Spirit of God was present, and God said, let there be light. The light was not the sun, which would be made later on in the fourth day, along with the moon and the stars. This light was God himself. God was the first provider of light to the world. The light was the very glory and radiance of God. And this is what Jesus claims to be. I am the light of the world. Jesus claiming to be the light was thus a claim of divine status equal to God. From Genesis onward, the light will be seen throughout the story of scripture. So let's go through all 200 instances this morning, and then we'll see what the light is. No, not really. Time and attention spans don't permit us to do that this morning. It would take much, much too long. But just very briefly, to give you an idea, here are just a few of the instances where light is mentioned in the Old Testament in regard to Jesus. And Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of cloud by fire by night to give them light, that they may go by day and by night. Exodus 13:21. Exodus 25, 37, then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps as to shed light on the space in front of it. Here in verse 37 of 25, the, the, Moses is talking about the object of the menorah. This is a lamp that has seven lamps, and they would always be lit to symbolize the completeness of light. The menorah was also a symbol of the presence of Yahweh among them as, and a, a typification of the Lord Jesus to come. So moving on into the Psalms, we see here, lift up the light of your face, O Yahweh. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Then Isaiah, come house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You will have Yahweh for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. You will have Yahweh for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. So there are dozens of more verses we could look at, but I think this gives us a working understanding of the light throughout the Old Testament. The light is God, and it is associated with his presence, his glory, his gift of life, his joy that he gives us, along with so, so much more. Let's turn now back to the Gospel of John. But we're going to make a pit stop in chapter 1, and it was read for us this morning. So just a few minutes ago, we read from Genesis 1, and John here writes the beginning of his gospel with the intention of mirroring the creation account. So, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. Now, in that last verse, some translations will say comprehend or did not understand it. But the best translators have said that this means overtake it. The darkness could not overcome or overpower the light. That is how powerful the light is. So in no unsure terms, John is equating Jesus to God. Jesus was not created by God, nor was he absent from creation. He was with God from the very beginning and was God. 
He was not passive during creation. All things that exist, exist because of Jesus. But when Jesus is involved, so are the Father and the Holy Spirit, and vice versa. Now this is the beauty of the Trinity. I was talking with a pastor from another church a few weeks ago, and he described that we often like to attribute specific things to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. But in reality, a lot of these things are Trinitarian. One member of the Trinity is not sidelined in the acts and events that one member does. So for example, we like to say that God the Father is responsible for creation. God the Son would be responsible for redemption. And God the Holy Spirit is responsible for sanctification. But in reality, all three events are Trinitarian by nature, meaning God the Father was not absent in redemption and sanctification. God the Son was not absent in creation and sanctification. God the Holy Spirit was not absent in creation and redemption. All three persons of the Trinity are one, and while they are distinct, they are not separate. So, when one member of the Trinity acts, all three members are working together. Now, much more can be said on the topic of the Trinity, but for the sake of this sermon, we will leave it at that for now. Now, going back to John 1, in verse 4, we again see that Jesus is life. And with life comes the light. The light shines in the darkness. Light is a powerful force against the darkness. If you were to light a candle in a room that was pitch black, it would light up the entire room. Another neat little fact, if you stood on an elevated surface and it was completely dark all around you, then you could see a candle, a single flame from a candle from over a mile and a half away. It is theorized that without the curvature of the earth and any other obstacles blocking your view, you could see it from tens, maybe even hundreds of miles away. Now compare that little candlelight to the light of Christ, the very first light of the world. How much brighter is his light than the light from a single candle wick? That is the light that is in each and every believer of Christ. Can your mind comprehend the magnitude, the sheer awe and wonder, the glory that accompanies the light of our Savior? Now it has been jokingly wondered by some, but perhaps genuinely as well. Am I going to miss Jesus' second coming? What if I'm asleep? What if I'm indoors or in the basement? What if I'm on the other side of the planet? Friends, I can assure you, no matter where you're at and what you are doing, if you are on the earth the day that Jesus Christ returns, you will not miss him. Let's return now to our main passage in John chapter 8. Throughout the rest of this passage, the Pharisees are mockingly trying to show that Jesus is not who he says he is that Jesus contradicts himself, and they wanted to prove this to the crowds. Jesus is making claims of deity, and they don't like this. This does not sit well with them. But how can we know for certain what Jesus is saying is true? Where are those who can testify? It has been established all the way back in Deuteronomy that two or more witnesses must testify to a claim brought about by someone. And we see this in verse 17 of chapter 8 as well. Even in your law, it has been written that the, witnesses, the witness of two men is true. So who are the two or more witnesses for Jesus' claim to divinity? In these verses, Jesus says, himself and the Father. But believe it or not, this is not the first time that Jesus' authority has been questioned. All the way back in John chapter 5, Jesus goes through his witnesses and evidences that can testify to him being the Messiah. The first of these is John the Baptist. He it was the only other prophet of the time. Now it should be noted this is not the author of John who wrote this gospel. John the Baptist is described in chapter 1 as the lesser light, Jesus being the light. So before Jesus became public with his ministry, 
John the Baptist was paving the way for him and telling people about the Messiah, telling them that he was coming and that he was coming soon. He himself testified that Jesus was the one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Next, we have the works of Christ himself. All the signs and miracles and wonders that Jesus performed were evidences to his deity. No one else other than God could have done those things. And this was sufficient to testify to his divinity. Next, we have the Father himself. The Father himself sent Jesus into the world and can therefore bear witness to him being his son. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Mark 1, 11. The Father also says at the transfiguration, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mark 9, verse 7. It is obvious that Jesus was the Son of God, and God the Father was. God the Father believed him and sent him as his Son. And then finally, we have Holy Scripture, the Bible itself. The Bible spoke of Christ all the way back to Genesis, as we saw. Although the Pharisees awaited their Messiah and sought for eternal life in the Scriptures, they would not accept Christ as the only true source. Jesus had ample witnesses to his divinity. They, didn't just, they just didn't want to believe him. They were judging according to the flesh. The Pharisees saw what they saw and chose not to see because of their blindness. Jesus' testimony was not sufficient in the eyes of the Pharisees because they did not truly know the Father. Verse 19, they were blinded to any and all evidence because they did not know God as they had claimed to. Now in chapter 9, Jesus makes the I am statement again in verse 5. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now before we take a break for discussion, I'd like to address this verse, since it's been debated by some in scholarly circles. Everyone in the discussion would agree that while Jesus incarnate in the flesh was in the world, he was the light of the world. But this seems to beg the question, is Jesus still the light of the world since he ascended into heaven? Maybe your gut reaction is yes, of course he is. Maybe you see verse 5 as a conditional statement where he is only the light of the world if he is in the world. Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is in heaven. After he was resurrected, on the earth for 40 days and ascended, he went to be at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We can see this in Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 12.2, and many more. Christ physically went to heaven and is still present there. So, since he is physically in heaven right now, how can he be the light of the world today? He can't be in two places at once, can he? Well, he actually can't be in just two places at once, because he is in every place all at once. This is what is called omnipresence. God is omnipresent. And this is one of God's attributes. And God is not bound by space and time as we are. David, in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I hide from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. When Jesus took on flesh, he laid aside some of his privileges as God. It was, in a sense, subtraction by addition. While never ceasing to be God, he was confined in the flesh to only be in one place at a time. After he resurrected, all his privileges as God were restored, including his omnipresence. So, Christ is in heaven. Christ is on earth. Now back to our question. Is Jesus still the light of the world today? Our answer? Absolutely. 
Most assuredly, unequivocally, undoubtedly, yes. Now, we've covered a lot of ground so far this morning, and before we dive, dive further into the practicality and application of these truths within our, within our own lives as followers of the light, let's take a break to discuss these truths and come back in about 10 minutes. Well, I hope you guys had some good discussion at your tables. I hope that time was fruitful and you guys learned something from each other. Now, before we broke off into discussion, we saw that the incarnate Jesus is currently in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He is physically in heaven. He is also present on earth because he's omnipresent. And in addition to that, his spirit indwells every believer. And this is where we will pick up our study on the light of the world. The light's followers have the light of the world. Since Jesus is the light of the world and his spirit is now within those who, of us who follow him, we have the light of the world. As we touched on earlier, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Because God is light, all three of them are light, which includes the Holy Spirit within us. So as Christ was and still is the light of the world, so we too, all of us who have believed in Christ for salvation, are the light of the world. Just as John the Baptist was the lesser light, so too are we. Jesus is the light, but because he is in each of us, we are his lights to shine in the world. But don't just take my word for it. See what the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. That kind of settles the argument, right? So a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Friends, we are the light of the world. Our primary purpose on earth is to shine as the light and radiance of Christ, to follow him, to conform to him, to live as he lived. Look at verse 15. What use is a lamp if it is hidden, if someone puts it on a basket, under a basket? How will it draw anyone to it if it cannot be seen? It is only when the light is revealed that people are drawn to it. When you reveal yourself as the light of the world by sharing the gospel, and living a life like Christ lived, people will begin to be drawn to you. Just as a city on a hill can be seen from miles away, our actions should show that the light and glory of Christ within us to everyone around us. The question we must ask ourselves then becomes, am I shining as the light and radiance of my Savior? Do my actions point to the light within me? Does my heart behind my thoughts and deeds reflect the same love and humility as my Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, Jesus gives us some insight regarding this. In John 11 and 12, we see Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Then in chapter 12, And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If we walk in the light, we will not stumble. We will shine like our Savior. We will act in love and humility as he did. But if we walk in darkness, we will certainly stumble. As Paul describes in Ephesians 5, 8, and 10, 8 through 10, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Walking in light, practically speaking, 
consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. It is trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Walking in darkness, however, will look like seeking the pleasures of self. What can I do for myself? What can I do to maximize pleasure and minimize pain? Walking through life this way will cause you to stumble. And this isn't a may stumble, or it's probably likely that you will stumble. If you walk in darkness, you will stumble. Suppose all the lights in the church suddenly went dark. All the windows were boarded up so that no light could come in, and you were supposed to make it, say, to the second floor of the children's building. You would likely fall over something. I'm clumsy enough in the light as it is. We'd be hitting chairs, tables, doors, stairs, people. I can guarantee you that if you try to walk in the darkness, you're going to stumble. And this is what it looks like when we try and live in obedience without Christ in us. Before you can have hope to have victory over your sin, Christ must be the one guiding your steps. Now there's another uncomfortable aspect of this that we need to address as we move forward. And this brings us to our final point, that the light of the world will return to the world to judge the world. And when he returns, not all who have been exposed to the light will see him. Despite the knowledge and religion of the Pharisees, they did not see the light when he was right in front of them. Despite the relationship and close proximity the people of Nazareth, his own hometown, had to the light, they did not see him when he was among them. Despite the Roman leaders who testified to the innocence of the light, they sought to please the crowd by handing him over to be crucified on a tree, and they did not see the light when he was presented to them. Despite those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name, they did not see the light as he had revealed himself. They will hear from the light on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, because what they really practiced was lawlessness. We do not necessarily have the light because we know things about theology or are surrounded by believers or think Jesus to be a good man or even because of the good works that we do in his name. In fact, if Christ is not in us, all these good things, they become barriers to really, truly knowing him. So I ask you, do you know him? And more importantly, does he know you? This is the most important question we must ask ourselves. And the good news is, our answer can be in the positive. We can know for certainty that Christ is in us, not by our circumstances, not by how we feel on even any given day, not even by our performance. We know because of this, the holy words of God. The Old Testament looks forward to the Messiah. They seek in the prophecies and the, in the Pentateuch uh, that there will be a Messiah who will save them from their sins. In the New Testament, the Messiah himself arrives and teaches us that he is the one who gives life and light. He is the one who loves and knows us. The apostles expound upon his teaching and give further assurance of salvation. And at the very end, we see that we join the rest of believers as we await his return, when he will come back in all his glory and splendor and magnificent shining light. J.C. Ryle has put it this way in regard to Jesus being the light. Christ is to the souls of men what the sun is to the world. He is the center and source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. Like the sun, he shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for high and for low, for rich and for poor, for Jew and for Greek. Like the sun, 
he is free to all. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts and not on Christ. Their foolish hearts are darkened. But whether men, see, whether men will see or not, Christ is the true sun and the light of the world. There is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus. Now let's take another look at our main passage in verses 15 and 16. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. The judgments of the Pharisees were according to the flesh. They looked outwardly and used their own self-righteous legalism to judge and measure those around them. Their intention was not to shine as the light of God. Their intention, rather, was to outshine everyone else around them. They would say, well, as long as I'm doing better than him, or as long as I'm more righteous than her, then they're doing fine. But that is not the measure of judgment that Jesus will use. Jesus' judgment is true, because his authority comes directly from the Father. He is not merely a messenger for God. He is God himself. He is the King. He has made his decrees known to us through his word. He set the standard. He lived the perfect life. He is the only one righteous enough to judge a world darkened by sin. And make no mistake, one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 2 and 3, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. All will be revealed. All will be brought into the light. Will you have the light in you before that day? Or will you still be in the darkness of the world? On that day, the wicked will be judged, and the righteous will be pardoned. And the righteous will only be pardoned because of the Savior who imputes his own righteousness to us. So one last look at John 8 and verse 20. Shows us that at this point, Jesus' hour had not yet come. But eventually, his hour did come. The perfect Savior, the light of the world, tried in the courts of man, though no guilt was found in him. He was ordered to be executed. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was crucified on a cross. He experienced the full wrath of God. Every sin ever committed by me, by you. He took the punishment, then he gave his life. He was buried and in a tomb for three days, but then on the third he resurrected. He resurrected. He conquered death. And in this, he conquered death so that we may have life with him. He revealed himself to hundreds of witnesses, then ascended into heaven where he prepares a place for those of us who trust in him, and him alone for salvation. He has made this invitation available to you. So what will your answer be? If you have not accepted his free gift of salvation, don't wait. The cost will be great. The cost will be everything, but the reward is so much greater. If you have accepted his gift, then take heart, because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you do follow Christ, press on. Keep running the race. Walk in the light, and you will not stumble. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, the light of the world. We are so grateful for the light that is within us, Lord, the light that guides our steps. Lord, we ask that we would be the light in the world as you were, Lord, that we would shine in righteousness and holiness, Lord, that we would trust in you to do this. And Lord, if anyone in here is, does not have the light in them, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would come to know and trust you as those of us who have already do. Lord, we pray this in the holy name of your Son. Amen.